0: Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Our guest today is Robert Freund. He is an advertising and business litigator. Uh, he helps brands get ahead of regulatory compliance and does a good deal of regulatory consulting work to avoid any mishaps before they happen, Robert. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, impressed with your presentation at General Assembly in Santa Monica uh, last month at that event uh, for Social Media Club, and so I agree. You, ta- uh, I um, appreciate you taking the time to do this. Let's start with a discussion about GDPR because, I mean, most of us, if we're not compliant already, should be. Uh, You know, what is GDPR?
1: GDPR was an effort uh, by the European Union to bolster uh, consumer privacy rights. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily directly in response to the Cambridge Analytica issue with Facebook, but certainly that played into it. And it sort of reflected uh, increasing demand from the public, to have a better understanding about what businesses do with the information they collect from you. If you use your website or conduct business with somebody online and what information they're collecting in the first place, who you're potentially selling it to, what can a consumer do if they don't want you to handle their data in a certain way. And it's just a, a push for more transparency and, uh, it came out of the EU but if you do business with residents of the EU in any way then you're subject to at least part of it so I think I think a lot of businesses were scared of it when it initially came out and you know it, it turns out to be not that huge of a burden to comply with uh, the more pressing issue for us-based companies especially right now is the California's Sort of version of the gdpr that builds on it called the CCPA that goes into effect january 1st 2020 um but there's a grace period where the california ag is not going to enforce it and we can talk about that later but yeah to answer your so question to GDPR, GDPR.
0: just to sort of sum it up so we're talking sure. about data collection so that could be like emails on forms or other information you take in or of course i mean even google analytics right because that's information that you're taking in. Right. And then we're talking about disclosing that, right? I mean, that's pretty much what it is a series of tick boxes on those forms or, um, you know, a notice before you load a cookie uh, to let people know that you're taking the information. Then of course, giving them a way to uh, opt out or delete that data if they want.
1: Correct. And that's, that's why you probably noticed so many cookie pop-ups in the last year and a half or so when, visiting sites that you had visited before where those didn't pop up because that was a component of GDPR. And you're right, it's about disclosures. It's about updating your privacy policy, making your privacy policy easier to find and your website terms of use and putting information about how you're using data and what you're collecting in front of the consumer.
0: Now, it's a European, it's an EU regulation. So why... If if the jurisdiction is continental Europe, why does it matter to a U.S. company?
1: Well, that is a good question. But it is extraterritorial in reach the way that it's written. And if you're a U.S. business that solicits business from the EU, or even if you're aware that European citizens or residents in the EU are visiting your website, the way the rule is written, it still applies to you. Now, there's certainly issues with you know, how, how would enforcement actually play out, and that kind of depends on the scope of your business. If you have offices in the EU, it's going to be a lot easier for a European authority or a court to hold you accountable there and actually enforce a judgment. If you're solely U.S.-based, it's kind of an open question whether can a European court find that you violated the GDPR? And then would a U.S. court enforce that penalty? And, you know, I'm not, I I wouldn't profess to be an expert on the GDPR, but from what I've seen, other legal experts who do specifically focus on that compliance, it's still a bit of a question of how, how far does that territorial reach practically go in terms of enforcing a foreign judgment against a U.S. company that doesn't have a physical footprint in the EU, so that's kind of a long way. Well, let's way of talk saying. about
0: let's talk about the jurisdiction yep. that you are licensed to practice law in the state of California and the CCPA.
1: Right. Tell us about the CCPA. So the CCPA uh, sort of what does it stand it's, for? It's the uh, California. Um, wow. Well, <laughs> Uh, right, we can Google California, it. The
0: California
1: Consumer, Consumer Privacy Act? Or? Consumer Privacy Act, yes. Okay. I, was, I was thinking about the computer fraud act for a second and got the words jumbled. Yeah, California Consumer Privacy Act. So it basically builds on the GDPR, uh, taking that philosophy, and uh, it, it's, there's even more steps that if you're subject to the CCPA that you have to comply with, with respect to how you treat and process or collect California consumer uh, personal information. And the definitions of, you know, what is personal information, how can you even tell if you're subject to the CCPA, the way it's defined, you know, the answers to all that are not completely clear, and there's still ongoing discussion with the California Attorney General in terms of what regulations will go into effect that sort of modify and affect how the CCPA will actually be enforced. Um, So we can talk about, you know, who, how it applies, who it applies to and that sort of thing.
0: But I mean, we're talking about January one, right? I mean, this thing is right around January one,
1: right? January one is when it goes into effect. And the understanding right now is that there's going to be a grace period until July in which the AG is not going to actually bring any enforcement actions to sort of allow people to get into compliance, which can be an expensive and time-intensive proposition, depending on the size of your operation and exactly what you're doing with data and how you have to comply with it.
0: What do you expect? I mean, is it going to be – I mean, do you think it'll be as simple as a few, you know, disclosures and, you know, a notice that you're loading a cookie, or is it going to be more far-reaching?
1: it could be more far reaching depending on you know if you are a company that is in the business of data processing like if you're something like PayPal where you are handling just tons of very sensitive consumer information then you're going to want a, a comprehensive data privacy officer with a team to make sure that your data inventory is set up to comply that you have procedures in place for consumers who want to opt out of data collection, you know, depending on the complexity of your business, it can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. There was some report that among large companies, and I can't remember how that was defined in the report, but there's an average spend of between 10 and $50 million to try to get up to speed with CCPA compliance. And that's before it's even gotten into effect and before we completely know the contours of how it'll be enforced. So, It can be a big undertaking if you handle a lot of sensitive data. If you're a smaller business that just has a website that would potentially subject you to having to comply with the CCPA, CCPA, then your obligations are not, you know, as extreme. It's really just updating your privacy policy again and your website policy, doing a basic audit of how you're collecting data and what you're collecting, what controls you have in place for protecting it, what would happen in case of a breach and how you would notify people and that sort of thing. So it, it sort of the burden scales up and down depending on how complex your business is.
0: And how do they determine size in terms of who's, uh, who's responsible for complying and who's not?
1: So that's an interesting question. There's three basic requirements are you will be subject to the CCPA if you exceed $25 million in gross annual revenue, you obtain... These are or, so that's one way that you would be subject to it. If you collect and process data from California residents and you have $25 million in gross annual revenue or you obtain personal information from 50,000 California residents per year or your business earns 50% or more of its annual revenue from selling personal information of California residents. So those are the three ways. so,
0: So you could be doing, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in business, but if half of that is coming from selling data from California residents, then you're, you're subject to compliance.
1: Right. And I think even one of, one of the more interesting questions, at least to me, It's the idea that if you obtain personal information from 50,000 California residents, then you're subject to it. Now, that includes if you just have a website that gets traffic from 50,000 California residents a year and you track cookies, all of a sudden you're subject to the CCPA. And part of the question is, well, how can can a small business determine whether 50,000 California residents are visiting its website every year? You know, IP addresses aren't necessarily the easiest way to determine that. People travel, people use VPNs. It's not its not the clearest thing in the world how you're supposed to figure out whether, you know, 50,000 California residents are visiting your website every year. And so in response to that, the advice is just, well, comply, because that's always the safer option. But it is interesting that you still have this kind of ambiguity in – trying to figure out whether you comply, in the, whether you have to comply in the first place.
0: Well, I mean, if we can't figure it out, how is the Attorney General going to figure it out?
1: Right, and that's one of the concerns that has been raised. There is a, um, I don't know if you want to call it a town hall, but there is an opportunity for uh, businesses and, and companies that would be subject to the CCPA to sort of voice their concerns to the AG as they continue to, revise the regulations, and that was one of the concerns that was expressed. Like, how is a small business supposed to even figure out if they have to comply, and then is it really fair to make a small business that just has a website that maybe the only information they track is somebody's IP address, do we really have to go through the burden of complying if that's the only data we're collecting? Because as it's written right now, the answer would be yes, but you can understand how that might not really be a fair thing to make people do especially if you know a small business that's not located in California you have to figure out if California residents are visiting your website so that's a pretty broad sweep that I think rightfully small business owners are concerned about
0: it's interesting that this um, uh, new uh, rule goes into effect on the first and next year is an election year so I've got to think there's going to be a lot of um, uh, political action committees and um, political campaigns that are going to be very actively campaigning online. Uh, Clearly, if they're successful, they're going to reach more than 50,000 people. Is this just for businesses, or would a 501c nonprofit have to comply? Would a political campaign have to comply? Did they carve that out?
1: Uh, You know, that's a good question. I I can't recall if there was an exception for... Uh, public companies and, and governments um, I'd have to look into that I, I can't recall
0: let's let's uh, shift gears and talk about the um, the FTC.com disclosure guidelines because I know you sure. do a lot of work around that um, right. and you know they're essentially you know these truth and advertising uh, guidelines that try to extend the same uh, requirements, uh, that apply to advertisers on TV and, and, and radio to social media and the internet by right. basically um, making sure that you disclose if you've been compensated to post something on a brand or an organization's behalf. Um, right. And, and we see so many organizations just ignoring them.
1: That's right. Uh, and, and, it's, it's an interesting challenge for regulators and it's also just an interesting arena. You know, when, when it was just television advertising, there's a much greater barrier to entry to businesses who would have to comply with these laws and get on TV in the first place. Now, pretty much anybody with a cell phone can at least look like they're running a business or doing influencer marketing. And a lot of them will just start a marketing campaign without having a lot of sophistication or even being aware of the rules. And the same goes for influencers that are approached by brands that are maybe maybe not quite as sophisticated, and, and the idea of FTC compliance is still you know, not even on their radar at all. And I think that low barrier to entry kind of contributes to the problem. But that said, there are still large companies and brands that you see not complying with the disclosure requirements on Instagram ad campaigns and that sort of thing and I think it's still a blind spot even for more sophisticated brands
0: and so that sort of gets us on to the topic of fake reviews right because if you are (coughs) posting on behalf of a brand and not disclosing that you were paid you have a material interest uh, as a result of receiving compensation and so it's not unbiased, it's, it's not objective, it's paid, it's advertising, it's not, uh, you know, a valid endorsement. Yet, I mean, just I think it was, uh, let me look at the date here on this. So I'm looking at a story October 23rd uh, at CNN.com about this skincare brand, Sunday right. Riley, which published all these fake Sephora reviews for almost two years on the Sephora website. Um, There was also recently uh, an article in the New York Times, I don't know how they valued it, but they basically said that an an additional star in a star rating on an Amazon product listing was worth 26% more sales. So there's real money at stake. So what happened is this organization is out there posting fake reviews and uh, they get caught. They've been doing it for two years. And uh, the FTC basically just slaps their hands and says, don't do it again. They don't find them, uh, which is bizarre because one of the organizations have been caught. They get fined millions of dollars. So I I don't really understand what went down here or why why this happened. Do you you agree with it? What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, this case is interesting because what Sunday Riley, which is the name of that skincare company, was doing – it wasn't just that they had people posting fake reviews or sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, encourage that. They had policies directing their employees to write fake reviews and internal emails from leadership saying, here's how you can post a whole bunch of them on Amazon. Here's how you can you know, directly violate Amazon's terms of service and sort of drive down negative reviews so that they don't get seen. It was an active and aggressive campaign to get fake reviews promoted on Amazon. So it's about as egregious a case of that as you could possibly have. And, yeah, I mean, even within the FTC, there was dissent about how they handled it, that if the message is, well, if you go pretty much as far as you can go encouraging fake reviews and the result is, yeah, you know, the company's name is in headlines for those of us that pay attention to it for this sort of thing. But no financial penalty and just an order not to do it again, that I think, I, you know, I agree with the dissenting members, the FTC, that said this just encourages this behavior because it shows, it shows there's really no risk. So why not just screw it up? And in the event that the FTC catches you, you know, no harm, no foul, basically. So in terms of how, that, how they arrived at that decision for that enforcement action, I don't know. It, you know and we're not going to know, but I, I certainly don't think it sends the right kind of message to the marketplace. But what they did wrong with fake reviews, you know, there's more seemingly innocent ways to encourage fake reviews that still violate the FTC guideline. And it's not just if you're compensated with money that you would have to disclose your relationship. Even if you just get free product from some brand and an encouragement to write a review, negative or positive, you would still need to disclose, like, I got this shirt for free and I like it, that sort of thing. So what, you know, Sunday Riley did was on the extreme end of screwing up the rule, but a lot of people aren't aware that there are more subtle or I guess less less obvious disclosure requirements
0: Um, to what extent uh, do uh, you know do do people look into the political donations of these organizations that you know get slapped on the hand I mean you know could it be that Sunday Riley was a major contributor to uh, the current president's campaign I mean do we see these types of enforcement actions being politically motivated? Is there any, any, any smell of that?
1: I, I have not looked into that. Uh, so I I can't even really venture a guess as to any political motivation one way or another. Um, there's certainly nothing in, in the FTCs reporting of it, but of course there wouldn't be, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I haven't dug into that and, don't don't want to offer a guess that might not be correct so
0: so what what surprises you most when you look at um, how the uh, FTC disclosure guidelines are impacting the marketplace with respect to you know honesty and truth in social media communications is there anything that sort Uh, of smacks out stands out to you as wow? I just never would have I never would have thought this would happen
1: I think it's it's less sort of one event that makes me think, wow, this is such a surprise. I think it's just the ongoing lack of awareness that's so or or you know, intentional disobedience of the regulations that you see on Instagram and other social media platforms every day, like not even looking for it. I follow accounts that could be called influencer accounts. And it's obvious that they're posting stories with, you know, they got free product and they were encouraged to do a story. It's clear to me as somebody who pays close attention to this, this is the kind of connection going on that would require disclosure. But uh, somehow the message is just still not getting through to brands and agencies and influencers. I mean, many of the legitimate ones comply, but I'm still surprised by how, high profile, some brands and influencers are that are just flouting the uh, disclosure requirements. And, you know, I think there's a sense that, well, the FTC might not go after me if somebody is at least aware of the rules, but they're ramping up their enforcement activity. I think the fact that they released an influencer specific update in a way regarding the uh, disclosure guidelines reflects that intent to increase enforcement activity. And uh, I'm, I'm just surprised that you can continue to see people not complying, even despite the warning signs that there's going to be more enforcement.
0: Tell us about this influencer disclosure update.
1: So it was last month. Basically, the, uh, in addition to um, – the FTC's disclosure guidelines, or the endorsement guidelines, I think they're called. There was a there's an FAQ that the FTC put out that was laid out in hypothetical question and answer format that focused a lot on social media and how the endorsement guide applied to social media. And then last month, the FTC came out with uh, I think they called it an update. The substance didn't change at all, but what they had done was they came out with a few one-minute-long YouTube videos and then I think a three-page PDF and a blog post or two specifically saying, I think they even put it in bold letters, you know, as an influencer, you are responsible for compliance with these rules. And it was like a digest of how disclosures work, when you have to do it, and what they look like. And be, although there was nothing really new that changed any of the rules that were in place, I think the fact that they put that out reflects the FTC's recognition that noncompliance is just as prevalent as it's always been, or at least it's not getting better at the rate that they would expect, and that they're gonna ramp up enforcement activity, especially with respect to individual influencers.
0: So um, I'm holding a copy of the relevance report from the USC Annenberg Center for PR. They release this every year. They released it at a symposium last month. This is uh, – I'm going to read you an excerpt from an essay by Kathy Park. She is a a second-year grad student in the strategic PR program, and here's what she writes. She says, and the, the, uh, the, the uh, headline of the essay is The Search for Authenticity in Influencer Marketing. According to a study conducted by influencer marketing agency Media Kicks, only about 7% of endorsements on social media from the top 50 celebrity influencers comply with FTC guidelines of, for appropriate disclosure verbiage. Now, I've got to think, if you're a top 50 celebrity influencer, you know about the disclosure guidelines. It's to, it cannot yeah. be ignorance. But 7% of, of, of their posts comply? I mean, that's got to be an enforcement
1: issue. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see how those researchers were defying compliance, but I don't doubt the numbers at all. Um, yeah, the, the idea that those top 50 would be aware it's just a reminder that especially for brands and agencies doing influencer marketing work, you should have, well, you need to have an influencer agreement that you give to whoever is going to be endorsing your product that includes in it uh, an agreement that the influencer will comply with the FTC disclosure requirements and that they've read them. And you should include a link to the guides in the agreement you send them and consider sending them an actual copy of it because if the FTC investigates you, uh, you know, if they see one of your influencer ads that doesn't comply and they want to open an investigation, they're going to ask for the contract that you have with your influencer. And you want to be able to say, look, we had an agreement with this person. They agreed to understand these rules and comply with them. And, you know, they screwed up their obligation, but we try to monitor it and we have these programs in place. And that way you can, at least limit the risk that the FTC is really going to try to go after you for a couple of slip-ups here and there. But if you don't have anything in anything about the disclosure guides and the requirements in your influencer agreement, you're in a, a much worse spot.
0: So, you know, Kathy goes on in her essay. She, uh, she says, furthermore, Harvard Business Review reported that 28% of influencers were requested by the sponsoring brand not to disclose the partnership.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I obviously, that does yeah. it get
0: any worse?
1: Right. No, it, it really doesn't. Uh, especially, well, I, I don't think that even really needs any clarification or, or expounding upon. It. You c- cannot tell your influencers not to comply with the law unless you want trouble.
0: One in four...
1: Uh, uh,
0: are telling the influencers that they pay for the disclosure not to disclose the partnership. Crazy. You know, there was this other case and this was back in September and it was uh, an FTC fine against uh, an organization called career education corp. It's a $30 million fine for deceptive lead generation practices. Um, Basically, they had, well, here was the thing. Over uh, several years, they had, pay, they had paid 70 different marketing agencies to scrape consumer data for online lead generation. And uh, yeah, they got fined $30 million. It's interesting, right. you know, they, first of all, the, the, it wasn't the agencies that got fined because certainly 70 agencies over several years, that's a pattern of behavior driven by the client. Uh, but it's interesting that they get fined $30 million and Sunday Riley walks free. You know, now they're different. Sunday Riley's posting, posting fake reviews. This one's scraping data. But, I mean, do you see one as worse than the other?
1: Um, it's hard to say which one's worse. I, if I recall correctly, the lead generation company was misrepresenting some connection to the military. And it's like... Taking data, which I, I guess is well, I, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, is that is that more like fraud than a review from an employee that doesn't truly reflect reflect a uh, an accurate assessment of a product? I mean, it's basically different degrees of the same problem. But I definitely well, agree one with problem
0: that. is actually taking someone's data and soaring it someone's personally sure. personal identifiable information. And then the other is, you know, a, a fake fake news or a fake review. It's funny, man. Fake news, boy. I mean, that has become such a meme. It, it, it goes right. in so many different directions. We're living in a post-truth age.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely some overlap there. But, yeah, with the lead generation thing, reading the FTC's complaints, when I did, I, I remember that the focus was on basically fraudulent statements to try to get people to sign up or or to give their information over. So, yeah, it's more it's more violative of a consumer's right if they are if you are taking something from them through those false statements. In a more that that feels more direct than having somebody spend money on a product because of of a review that's not completely honest. So, but I, right. I agree that it
0: does feel like an of a breach.
1: Yeah, thirty million dollars in one enforcement action and zero dollars in another—it doesn't really seem to check out. But you can't—you know, can't, you can't help
0: but wonder whether or not these things are politically motivated. You know, who they decide to make an example of—you you just can't help but wonder.
1: Let's um, let's do, let's yeah.
0: do a sort. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, it's, it's certainly a, a valid question and something that would be fascinating to be able to find out. But um, I, don't, I don't think we'll have that access, at least not the way things are currently reported. Yeah, you, well, you'd need – well, I mean,
0: you could, you could certainly follow it because um, political donations are disclosed. But, I mean, you'd need, you know, a hard-nosed you know, investigative journalist in several months – I'd yeah. be a great story. I'd probably, she'd probably be a good one to, to whisper into the ear of someone over at the New York Times or sure. some other hard news outlet. Uh, let's do sort of an update here because this is our sort of our, our compliance 2020 uh, special issue here. So let's talk about sort of where we are with respect to um, uh, corporate online marketing or online communications policy. Uh, you know, many sure. organizations have a social media policy or a digital media policy
1: <clears throat>
0: that um, employees sign for when they come on board. Unfortunately, many of them sign for it, put, put it in the bottom drawer, but nonetheless, it does need to be current and reflect, uh, you know, the latest laws that are in place. Um, I had created right. uh, a workplace poster. Based on the major acts that were out there, it should, it should probably be updated, but I'll just go through it really quick, and then we can talk about them. Uh, in 1934, the National Labor Relations Act was passed in the U.S., and it protects workers' rights to discuss wages, hours, and working conditions on social media. And there were a number of different cases where uh, people talked about those things online, and they got fired, and then they got their job back because they went to the uh, NLRB and protested. We've got the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which imposes restrictions on employees uh, doing, on employers doing social media back, background checks, particularly with job applicants. There's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which makes using someone else's credentials to access a social networking account uh, without proper proper authorization a crime, criminal offense. There's the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which imposes restrictions on what type of employee threads can be monitored uh, on social media by employers, so you may not even have thought of it, but if you're monitoring <clears throat> social media online and you wind up picking up inadvertent conversations between employees that you shouldn't, that's, you know, violation of the uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act. There's the Communications Decency Act, which makes sending anything obscene or indecent to a minor via electronic communications a crime. And uh, we saw TikTok get nailed for that because uh, they allowed adults to talk directly to teenagers or minors on their site. And I think that's under 14, anyone under 14. There's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which makes hacking uh, copyright protection software a crime. But it also indemnifies social networks from copyright infringement claims as long as they comply with takedown requests. Uh, there's FINRA, which isn't really a government. It's sort of a, um, uh, a, a, an industry reg, and that um, uh, affects how, uh, how you release on social media information about the financial industry or information that could impact the, um, the value of a stock, uh, publicly traded stock. And there's the FTC.com Disclosure Guidelines, which we've just been talking about. We started with a discussion about GDPR. We and CCPA, so we know we need to update our policies for those two, right?
1: For GDPR and CCPA, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I mean,
0: does that require policy? a employee policy update?
1: Um, it, it, I guess it depends on what is in your employer policy. It's definitely a good idea to review what you have. If that talks about privacy obligations. And if it speaks to how your employees are handling or processing uh, personal information of your customers, then you need to make sure that all that language is up to date and and at least, you know, have trainings for employees who are handling data where this might be relevant. Um, And just make sure that any language that spoke to the rules that were in effect before these laws were passed are now up to speed and that you're not saying anything wrong or omitting anything that needs to be in there.
0: Let me read you a couple of uh, lines from a policy template that I've created on personal privacy. Employees have a right to their personal privacy. They have the right to keep their their personal opinions, beliefs, and thoughts and emotions private. Employees are prohibited from sharing anything via social media channels that could violate another employee's right to personal privacy. And then two, examples of social media disclosures that may compromise an employee's right to privacy include, but are not limited to, pictures, video, or audio shared and recorded through social media channels without the permission of any single employee featured, the public disclosure of private facts, or the disclosure of information gained through unreasonable intrusion. How would you update that to comply? What's, what's missing?
1: Well, I don't think that the GDPR or CCPA would really impact that kind of – that part of a social media policy because you're not really talking about personal information from uh, consumers who are doing business with you. There's, there's nothing – I mean, that language sounds fine, and companies have pretty, lo- pretty big leeway in what they – want to define as acceptable social media use for their employees. Um, you, know, you can be more restrictive and, or, or less. Uh, but the important thing is that you have a social media policy in place to ensure employees understand what they can and can't do, it, that customers who interact with your brand on social media, either through employees or through the company's main page, get a consistent brand statement and consistent brand experience, and it also allows you to take action if employees violate the policy in a way that, you know, you've defined as not being acceptable. But with respect to GDPR and CCPA with the language that you just read, I don't think that anything needs to be updated.
0: Well, what about this one? And this is from a section on disclosure and transparency. Since reputations are built on trust, employees are strongly requested to disclose their identity and affiliation to our organization, uh, to whatever the name of the company is, uh, whenever discussing the name of the company, related, uh, doesn't make sense. Since reputations are built on trust, employees are strongly related to disclose their identities when sharing, relating related topics via social media channels, as long as they can do so without forfeiting their legal right to bargain collectively or engage in concerted or protected activities under the NLRA.
1: Uh, I would probably change it. You know, strongly requested an employee could look at that and say, well, you know, I thanks for the request, but I'm not going to do it. You know, you can change that to required if you want to have that be uniform. Um and it's a good idea if if somebody connected or employed by your brand is going to be talking about it online, you have to make that kind of disclosure and it's just good policy to ensure that everyone does that all the time. So that I would edit that. Um, I, I don't know that you need the part about, you know, as long as they don't violate free speech rights and that sort of thing. It's kind of, it's, it's extra, it doesn't hurt, but you don't need to sort of walk people through um, the other rights they, that are sort of in the background for them anyway.
0: Well, they do have a, uh, you know, federal right to bargain collectively. Right. Or, you know, engage in conservative protected activities under the National Labor Relations Act. So Sure. And that, and that actually was, you know, that was a couple of policies were gutted. Based on not having that in there, and so the response was, "Well, how can you tell me, uh, you know, that I have to always, you know, make some disclosure? What if I'm organizing with other workers to unionize or get better pay?"
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's if if union issues came up, that's sort of in the territory of an employment attorney with special expertise in that area. And there's a lot of lawyers that just I- exclusively practice in the area of employment and labor relations. Uh, the point was just, you know, if somebody has those rights, then you don't necessarily, at least I wouldn't think, and I don't, I don't want to profess to be an expert on labor relations law, but, you know, generally the caveat, like, as long as this doesn't violate your other rights, you don't always have to have it in there. That's the only point I was making. Right, right.
0: Tell us, us if you would, maybe about some of the most interesting uh, legal cases that you've been involved with in this area.
1: Um, hmm, Well, how am I going to do this? I can
0: can jog your memory. I mean, I know you've got several of them uh, listed on your website. Um, I know you've worked with a a video game company on packaging and labeling language, television advertising, software warranty issues. Um, I know you did yeah, a major television that was network it. against copyright and unfair business practice claims.
1: Right, yeah. The, the video game company, this was a relationship where uh, this video game publishing company would uh, come to the firm for advice before launching ad campaigns or, or putting on sales and that kind of thing. And so some of the issues that came up were they're about to release a, a pretty popular gaming title, and they were running a TV ad, and the TV ad showed in-game footage of what it looks like when you play the game, uh, and it, it also depicted some, like, CGI cutscenes within it that aren't actual gameplay, and other companies have found themselves facing class action potential liability for showing things in a commercial that didn't actually end up in the game, and so... This company wanted to make sure they avoided that. So we, we analyzed you know, what kind of disclosure you might or might not need when running an ad like that to make sure people understand what is and isn't in the game, which is kind of an interesting question. Uh, and then things like they wanted to – they ran a series of video games that were sort of updated every couple years. And the older iterations they wanted to bundle – and and sell them as like a package deal. And they wanted to say, you know, X value, now this X reduced price. In California, and I'm sure many other states have very specific rules about how you can advertise a sale against a former price, and they wanted to make sure that their bundling deal and the labels they were putting on that bundled package didn't violate those rules. And then they had another issue where they were – sort of sunsetting and phasing out an online component of a game and they wanted to make sure that with it they weren't violating or improperly I guess modifying their terms of service for every customer who had bought this game that said they, you know, they were buying online access as a main component of the game that was now going to be shut off how can you do that without facing claims like you know you promised this part of the game, now this part of the game doesn't work, I effectively have no game, what have I really bought, and that kind of thing. And there's some precedent for how to work through those issues. And as yeah, definitely varied but interesting questions about how to market um, video games, especially online games.
0: Is there anything, uh, just as sort of a parting question, is there anything at all about this uh, disclosures for social media influencers document that was released by the FTC. Um, Was there anything sort of struck you on that as, and it seems like there's nothing new there. There's just more different stuff from the.
1: Yeah. What stood out to me was that they put in bold as an influencer, you are, you are responsible and uh, it's worth noting that's not to the exclusion of other people in the advertising that touch the advertising who might also be liable. It's really everybody who has touched it up and down the chain is potentially liable. The brand that is using the influencer, the agency that connected them, uh, if you're running ads on your website, the FTC has said even though the website designer could potentially be liable if they're not checking out the claims on the website that they're making. So, But I, I think what the FTC, or my take on what the FTC was doing by putting that language in bold was sending a message that they recognize influencers are not paying attention to this or choosing not to comply, and they want to make sure that that piece improves. But I think everybody should recognize that it's, it's of course, not just the influencers that have to comply. It's, it's everybody that's involved.
0: And, of course, you know, just because you're driving over the speed limit and don't get a ticket doesn't mean you're not breaking the law.
1: Right. Eventually, you'll get a ticket. <laughs> and probably eventually, if it's not the FTC, you know, there's the potential for private litigation as well. That hasn't come up that much yet, but I expect it will as these issues become more publicly talked about and, you know, more... Well,
0: what the would the damages be like? If I wanted to sue somebody for a fake review or not disclosing a material interest, how would I know how much to sue them for?
1: Well, it would really depend on your position with respect to the brand as somebody who's suing, and what you're suing for, and what your your harm was. You know, the the typical consumer class action, if everybody is subject to the same fraudulent advertisement, and I'm not talking about just failure to comply with an FCC disclosure, but it's it, that would be the class damages, one way to calculate them is the price that everybody paid for, let's say, a product that just didn't work. So that's kind of a starting point. You can also calculate it the other way based on the profits that the advertiser collected from you know, running the fake ads. In the, in the context of suing somebody for not disclosing the material connection there's no private right of action for that under the FTC Act, at least not that you could uh, get damages for, but there's a federal statute called the Lanham Act that it's typically used in the trademark context, but it also allows competing brands uh, to sue each other for false advertising. So, a lot of Well, not a lot. The courts have said that the FTC Act and what the FTC considers violations of the disclosure guides uh, can inform what constitutes false advertising. So it's conceivable that if you are a business that is totally playing by the rules and all your disclosures are in place and you're doing everything right and you're losing market share to a competing business that isn't complying, you could have a claim against them under the Lanham Act where damages would include the loss of your profits, the profits that your competitor has gained. In egregious cases, there's the potential for punitive damages that, that could multiply that damages figure, and in some cases, attorneys fees. So. The Lanham Act is, a, is an interesting tool that I, I think will probably be used more in business-to-business litigation um, as there's more awareness about FTC disclosure requirements with respect to influencer marketing.
0: Well, Robert, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, uh, this call. And... Um, um, what are your predictions moving forward in the space? What's going to be the the hairiest uh, compliance issue for uh, companies moving forward?
1: Well, it's hard. It's hard to say what the hairiest issue will be. I I think, like I said, I think we're going to see more FTC activity in the influencer marketing space, especially with respect to disclosures. I think that. There probably will be more private litigation in, in that area as well as the FTC enforcement actions uh, become more more public and, and ramp up. Um, CCPA compliance, depending on the size of your company, could be a very expensive proposition. It could be not that big a deal, but in any case, you need to at least take a look at whether you're subject to it, and if so, how you're going to comply because uh, you know, the grace period only until July. It seems like far away now, but it'll be here pretty quickly. So I know that really doesn't answer your question as to what's the hairiest. <laughs> I think it's just, it's a good time with the new year to sort of take inventory about your compliance situation, have somebody look at what areas you, you might need to bolster and, and just do an audit of, of your own marketing and the agreements that you have with vendors and, and all your operations just to make sure that you're up to speed.
0: And, Robert, if a listener needs help with advertising or business litigation or they want help getting ahead of regulatory compliance, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Uh, you can email me. My email is robert at robertfreundlaw.com. You can also find me on Instagram at robertfreundlaw. And uh, my website is robertfreundlaw.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, too, if any of those works.
0: Right, and that's Robert Freund, and Freund is F-R-E-U-N-D. So it's robertfreundlaw.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.